John. We'll be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Um, and we will live in these verses throughout the next 40 or 45 minutes. Um, so far this quarter, we've seen a couple of warnings from God that have popped up in 1 John. Um, he has warned his church family, Christians, he calls us little children. <clears throat> Twice he's warned us already about the conflict between light and darkness. And we studied that in our, our first couple of weeks from 1 John 1, 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 6. He's told us about the conflict between love and hatred, which comes out of verses 7 through 17 of chapter 2, which we covered a big portion of last week. And this morning we'll read about a, a, a study of a third conflict and we'll, we'll look into it. It's the conflict between truth and error. Um, what we'll see this morning is it's not just enough for a Christian to walk in the light and to walk in love, but he also must walk in the truth. And the Christian must live a life of obedience, love, and truth. And if any of these parts are missing, then we are not fully in fellowship with God. And if we're not fully in fellowship with God, then we're outside of fellowship with God. Um, John's concern here is, is to instruct us on how we can distinguish between truth and, and lies in our practice, in our lives. Um, John faced a similar problem when he was writing this that we face now where truth was a very relative thing. Um, truth became what people thought was true became true. He was dealing with the Gnostics. Um, we deal with similar philosophies and thoughts today where everybody has their own relative truth. Um, some examples of this. A man can say, well, I truly believe I'm a woman and I can go compete in women's sports. The truth is that you're not, but in your own relative sense, you feel that way, so we're okay with it as a world. And, and it's these types of relative truths that, that John dealt with and that we will continue to deal with here. One of the things we'll see in this section of Scripture today, verses 18 through 29, is we'll also start to see John make a transition from where his emphasis is on fellowship with God till he starts to emphasize our sonship to God, our sonship with Christ, our, our relationship with Christ. So we're going to begin looking at verses 18, 19, and 22 because I think these three tie together very well. So if you have your Bibles, 1 John chapter 2, let's read 18, 19, and 22. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So we're going to start out this morning with a light topic of the Antichrist. Um, welcome to class if you're just tuning in. Um, this passage has created and continues to create a lot of confusion. Um, it's a passage that has been manipulated 
and twisted and taken out of context in many ways. But there's a lot of information in these three verses that are important to us that we need to understand. John wouldn't have left us this. God through John would not have left us these three verses if they weren't important to us. So this morning it's our goal to try to deeply or to gain a deeper understanding of what these things mean. So John begins this section with a familiar term. I think this is the fourth time, maybe the fifth, that we've seen him refer to Christians as children. Again, we're thinking of John late in his life. He is probably the only living apostle at this time. I see him as a very grandfatherly figure to the church. Um, he has been a close associate of Christ. Christ had trusted his mother's care to John. So John looks at the church as his children, and he refers to them as little children. So again, he begins this term of endearment, referring to the congregation to whom he is writing to, or us as Christians. But what is it meant when he says it is the last hour? Because not only are we going to deal with the Antichrist and what he's talking about here this morning, he uses this term, it is the last hour. Um, and that has created some confusion and discussion. Thankfully, there are many good commentaries about this. And if you really want to do a deep dive, find a few and read them. But what we'll do is just kind of a, an overview of these terms and these meanings so that we can understand in just general conversation with one another and, and with other people, uh, at least have a decent understanding. So what does he mean at the end of verse 18 when he says, therefore we know that it is the last hour? So there's a couple of thoughts that, that can be, be tied to this. And one of them is, are we thinking that John is expecting Christ's return to be imminent? Is, is he saying it is the last hour that Christ is soon to return? And based on the centuries that have occurred since the writing of this, I don't think it can necessarily refer to an immediate return of Christ because if it did, we've been quite some time since John wrote these words and Christ has not immediately returned. If the Bible is inspired, then then. John could not have been predicting the immediate return of Christ because he would have been wrong. And we know the Bible is without error. So another thought on this is that is he referring, when he says it is the last hour, is he referring to the end of the Jewish state? And again, I don't think that is a correct assumption because the Jewish state had ended at least one or two decades before the writing. If we put the writing of, of this around AD 90, we know that um, Jerusalem had long been destroyed at this point. Um, so considering the hour of the destruction of the Jewish state, it, it had already happened. So we, we don't think he's referring to that. So it leaves one final kind of idea, and I think this is the right one, that the term, if you read it in context with the verses before it, and let's flip to 17 and let's just read it just to gain context. So in verses 15 through 17, he's talking about love of the world. Um, he finishes this discussion in 17 and he says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So if we think about the last hour, John having just described the temporal existence of the world and pointed to the one that is coming, the one that 
if he follows Christ, it will abide forever. Um, he's kind of following up on that statement with this idea of the last hour. Um, he's directing attention to the fact that his readers were even now in this last hour and that the events that, that uh, were to be predicted were already occurring. There are three Greek terms that describe time. There's chronos, which is time in reference to duration or succession. There's kairos, which is the time contemplated with reference to events. And there's aura, which is time with reference to a fixed date or period. The term he uses here is aura. And in, it is the term that John uses here. And the meaning in this passage is a fixed date or period of time. So in this instance, the term is figuratively used to describe the time between the first and second coming of Christ, or probably more accurately, Pentecost, where the church is established, and the second coming of Christ. Um, from the divine perspective, there is only one event left in history that remains to be accomplished, and that's the triumphant return of Christ. Um, we have had God's word has been revealed to us. Christ has come the first time. He has redeemed man through death on the cross. Now we await one final major step in history, and that's the second coming of Christ, where Christ will return to earth. And that is what John is referring to as the last hour, is the time between the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension and the time of waiting for Christ to return. In the grand scheme of eternity, the last hour is a potentially a very short period of time. While it may seem like centuries to us, in the eternal scheme, it's just a blip on the map. And John is just giving reference to it's important we're living in this time. Um, we, this is the time that we are within. So then if we understand what he means by this is the last hour, then who or what is the Antichrist that he refers to um, in these passages. And first I think it's interesting when you read um, verse 18, it says, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. I think it's interesting to see that the recipients, those who were, who were actually physically getting this letter and reading it, they already had knowledge of the Antichrist. This was not a surprise to them. They had heard that that the Antichrist was there. And though this is the first time we read it, and one of the very few times we read that term in the New Testament, in the Bible in a whole, the early church was familiar with that topic because John refers to as you have heard. So the word itself suggests two possible meanings based on just the definition of the prefix anti. So anti can mean over against or one who puts himself in the place of Christ. And then it can also mean opposed to one who stands in opposition to Christ. And I don't know that it matters which of those two definitions of those prefixes you choose because they both represent somebody who is against Christ. Whether it is someone who's putting himself in the place of Christ or someone who's standing opposed to Christ, they both represent something that is against Christ. And John is the only biblical author to use the term or the expression antichrist. He uses it here in verse, um, in verse 18. He uses it in verse 22. 
He um, uses it again in chapter 4, verse 3, where he says, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And he uses it in 2 John in verse 7, where he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So while there's a lot of controversy about the definition of what is the Antichrist, John spells out a definition for us in these passages in, in 2.18, 2.22, 4.3, and 2 John 7. John gives us clues, gives us definition of what this person is or who this person is. And John uses these characteristics to define the Antichrist, a liar, a deceiver, a denier of Jesus as the Christ, and one that refuses to acknowledge that Christ has come in the flesh. What's interesting is that though John is the only of the biblical authors to use the term Antichrist, the sentiment of Antichrist is also noted throughout the writings. Flip to 2 Thessalonians for just a second. So Paul speaks of, of a very similar person, very similar setting, in 2 Thessalonians, and if you'll flip there to chapter 2, and listen to how similar what Paul says is to what John has written. So it's two, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That sounds very, very similar to what John is describing as the Antichrist, someone who is a liar, a deceiver, a denier of Christ, someone who stands in opposition to Christ. Jesus uses very, very similar terms as well in Matthew. Flip to Matthew, and we're going to go to chapter 24. And we're going to look at 24, verse 5, and then we're going to jump forward to verse um, 24. So verse 5, 24 verse 5 says, For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. If you flip to verse 24, we read... For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So Christ in his, his talking to his disciples, he's predicting that these people are going to come. People that stand in opposition to him, people who will be false Christs, people who will have false doctrine and lead people astray. So the individual described here, if you take John's accounts, Paul and Jesus, the Antichrist is someone or some people, it doesn't just have to be one, it's used in the plural in this sense as well, who places their will in opposition to that of God, who exalts themselves against God, who sits, sits in the temple of God, and who sets himself forth as a God. So... If you go back and look at 
the, the passage in 2 Thessalonians, another way to describing the Antichrist is he is the personification of sin, the son of perdition or destruction, a participant in false signs and wonders which have the purpose to deceive. So it's clear to see the similarities between the writings of John and Paul and what Christ has said in Matthew's account. A careful analysis of John's reference to the Antichrist reveals that the term is a general designation employed to suggest a spirit of disbelief that can be manifested in many, many ways. And I think it goes a step beyond just disbelief. I think it's disbelief, but it's disbelief with intent of teaching that disbelief to other people, setting yourself up in the place of Christ. Um, a careful, or contrary to current popular thoughts, John applies the term Antichrist to more than one individual and to individuals who were living then. So if you look again at 1 John 2.18 and 1 John 4.3, he's talking about people that are living amongst them at that time and multiple people. So it's not just one individual. These are people that were there and present in the first century. In fact, one of the signs that John has given for living in the last hour is that many antichrists have come. So living in that time between the resurrection and ascension of Christ and the second coming of Christ, John describes that as being the last hour because there are many antichrists that have come that are already there, that are already present. And there are those people today who stand in opposition to Christ, who stand in opposition to God's word and who are deceiving. That has not stopped. So remember John described the Antichrist behavior as being not from God. That's in 1 John 4, 3. Anyone who denied Christ, that's John 2, or 1 John 2, 22. As the deceiver, one who does not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, that's 2 John 7. But also in his gospel, in John 5, he describes him as the one who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse 19 reveals that they, sadly, these deceivers, these antichrists, sadly, they were formerly among the disciples and members of the church. Um, notice how he says that they went out from them, that they were among the disciples but were not of the disciples, meaning that they did not possess the same spirit of obedience and truth or they would have remained. So not only is John and the early church dealing with false teachers, people who are going out teaching against Christ, bending Christ's teaching to their own desires, setting themselves up as a God, asking other people to follow what they're saying over what Christ has said, but they're also people who are in their congregation people who were among the believers that had stepped outside. And, and that's probably more devastating than it being an outside party that was creating this. These people, these deceivers, these antichrists, were Christians' friends, family, loved ones, and yet they had stepped outside of God. And you can see why John is, is careful to teach against them because this is a major influence in the church. Um, it's one thing for a stranger, if a stranger came in our back door this morning and started to teach 
against Christ and to teach falsely about Christ, it's an easy thing to stand up to a stranger and to just push them away and say, no, you're wrong. But if one of our members walks in and starts teaching deceitful things and lying things and things that go against Christ, it's even harder to stand up. And that's what John's warning against here because there is a lot of false teaching that is starting to permeate throughout the church at this point. And so much of the letter of 1 John is dealing with false teachers and false ideas and, and, and the philosophies of that day. So I think it's an important discussion to have. You can read a lot of books on what the Antichrist is, who the Antichrist is, but I don't know that you need a lot of external books to define what John's talking about here because he's the only one that mentions this character throughout the entire New Testament. Now Paul and Christ speak to the character of these people but not by name of Antichrist and John defines him very, very well. Before we jump forward, any questions or thoughts after this discussion? This is where I look quickly and move forward. Okay, verse 20 through 21. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge... I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. So there's a couple possibilities of the meaning anointed used here in the passage. This, this whole morning's class is just full of tough things to talk about. So what is meant by anointed here? So one possible meaning of but you have been anointed by the Holy One one possible meaning here is that it's the ordinary measure of the Holy Spirit which all Christians receive at conversion. The Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth, John 15, 3. One of the problems with this theory is that those who received the anointing were able to know all things. I don't know if in your text it has this. I'm, I'm reading from the ESV. So, I have a footnote under the term and knowledge. So it says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. Does anyone else have footnotes there? So my footnote there says that some manuscripts read, you know everything. Some of our modern translations say you have all knowledge or that you know everything. Um, I don't think that this passage is just talking about having general knowledge but that these people had knowledge of all things. And the general measure, the ordinary measure of the Holy Spirit does not give us a gift of all knowledge. Um, none of us in this room know everything there is to know about Christianity. We don't all know how to properly discern false teaching from um, from doctrinal teaching. God's Word allows us to do that through the Holy Spirit and what He gives us in the Word. We're able to discern those things. But the Christians that John is writing to here at this time, they do not have the full inspired revealed Word of God. They just don't have it. I mean, he's writing them this letter, so they don't have this. We don't know what manuscripts they had. At this time, there were still a lot of folks that... that did not have access to it. So in context, in context, it's hard to think of this as just the general measure of the Holy Spirit. So I think another possibility, and I think more likely the meaning in this term of anointing, 
is the anointing from the Holy One, which was a miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit, which allowed disciples at that time to discern these antichrists, to discern against false teachings, against the Word of God. The fact that they have all knowledge makes more sense in this light. If the anointed received all knowledge pertaining to Christianity, there was no need for the written Word of God or the epistle that John was writing to them. Another thing is the people that John's writing to here, we have an apostle that is still living. We know that one of the gifts that the apostles had, those who were directly chosen by Christ, was they could, um, I guess, pass on or give this miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. We know once the apostles were gone that the miraculous age was basically done away with because Christ had given them this ability. So we have John still living. These people are contemporaries. A lot of the folks he's writing to remember Christ. They're a generation maybe removed from Christ. So it's possible that this is the miraculous gift of it. All knowledge in context makes more sense when limited, though, to include the pertainings of false doctrine and the Antichrist. I don't think all knowledge in this sense meant they knew um, relativity or physics or mathematics, but that they were given the gift to discern the spirits. Are these people teaching what is biblical and Christ-like and true, or are these people teaching what is against what is biblical and Christ-like and true? If we have a question about that, we open up our Bible, we flip through the passage, we do a study of it, and we make our decisions through the inspired Word of God. These Christians didn't have the full revealed inspired Word of God at this point. So they had to have the ability to test and to discern the spirits. And I think that in the absence of written revelation of God, which we have access to now, that this anointing of the Spirit was necessary to help the early saints discern and expose the false teachings and the teachers from their brotherhood. Now, do I believe that every single Christian at this time had that gift? No, I don't. Because if they had this gift, if every living Christian had this gift, I don't know that John and that Christ and that Paul would have taught so much about false teaching. Um, he le they wrote it as, as, a, as a reference for us to go back to to understand false teaching. But these letters were written in their time directly to congregations, to Christians. So maybe the elders in the congregation had that ability. The men that the apostles had given this gift to, the Christians that the apostles had passed this gift to had this ability. But it makes more sense in context to talk about this being a, a miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit that allowed them to discern the spirits, to discern evil versus good, Christ versus unchristlike, false teaching versus true teaching. And he was writing to them because they knew the truth. They had the ability to discern between the truth and the lie, the lie being a product of the liar in verse 22, who is the Antichrist. So he says in verse 21, I write to you not because you do not know the truth. So he's acknowledging by saying that, that they had an idea of the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. And then he says, who is the liar but the one who denies the Christ, the Antichrist. So in this, this gift that they had, 
was the ability to discern Christ from Antichrist. True godly doctrine versus false teaching. And it's confusing and it's difficult, but if we're talking about the ordinary measure of the Holy Spirit, which we all receive when we are baptized and brought into the kingdom of heaven, in context it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. Because we, having that as Christians, outside of God's Word, don't have that ability to discern Antichrist versus Christ without comparing it to the Word of God. Moving forward to verse 23 through 25, he says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If you had heard from the beginning, abide, if what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he makes to us, eternal life. So John reminds his audience here that to deny the Son is to deny the Father. You cannot choose one over the other. You are either with both or you're with neither. He is building off of a description of the Antichrist in verse 22, and he is again reestablishing the deity of Christ. If you abide in one, you abide in both, Christ and the Father. So John 1, 14 and 18 says, just verses 14 and 18 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. That He in that passage is Christ. The Son has made God known. Who revealed God to the world? Christ. In the New Testament, the revelation of God to the world was through Christ. He was the living example, picture, image, person, character of God. So John then encourages the Christians to hold fast to, to remain in that which had been taught to them since the beginning, meaning their earliest experience with the gospel, the things that they had been taught from the apostles, the things they had been taught by the early mission efforts of the church. To abide means to literally let that message settle down and find a permanent home, to let it permeate you, to let it reside in you, to let it live in you. And then he explains to them that if what they had learned abides in them, they will abide in the Father. So as you read this part of the verse, you see it is a conditional thing, though. Um, when you look at this passage, there are conditions to it because there are words like if in here, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you. So if the word abides in you, you'll abide in the Father and Son. And if that is true, then the opposite of that is also true. If the Word does not abide in you, you will not abide in the Father and the Son. So this passage emphasizes the necessity of continued faithfulness for salvation. It's similar to what John said in John in his Gospel, chapter 6, verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And then in John 15, talking about the vine, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So John then, as he wraps up verses 23 through 25, he reminds us about eternal life that awaits for the faithful. Eternal life is a promise, and it's a promise that is conditioned on our holding fast to that which we have heard since the beginning. Now, eternal life is promised, and it'll be there forever. It's there for anyone who has accepted Christ, who follows Christ, who abides in Christ, who abides in the Father the condition is that word if that stood out again in verse 24. If what you heard from the beginning abides in, then, abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and the Father. So there is a condition for it that we have to abide in the Word. We have to abide in the Father and the Son. And if we can do that, we receive that promise of eternal life. So he's, he's teaching against these false teachers who are, who are preaching in opposition to Christ. And he's... he's, he's telling them ways to defend it, but then he gives them the hope of defending it. He says, if you'll abide in the Word, if you'll abide in the Father, if you'll abide in the Son, if you will resist these false teachings, eternal life is yours. And that's a big if, and it's a big if that we still struggle with today, each and every day. The church struggled with then, and we will continue to struggle with until the last hour ends and Christ returns. Verses 26 and 27 say, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So we get a little break about the anointing, and then he brings it back, and he better defines the anointing in these passages. Those trying to lead the readers astray were the Antichrist, verse 18. They were false teachers of that period who were active in their efforts to lead others away from Christ. And because of the false teachers, John has written to them in order to encourage them and exhort them to remain true to what they've heard in the beginning. And false teachers were present early in the church, and they presented a problem not only to John's audience, but they were also addressed by Paul. Paul and his writings really talked about false teachings. In Acts 20, 29 through 30, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. In 1 Timothy 4, 1 and through three, he says to Timothy, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So in verse 27, when the apostle said, and you, this is verse 27 of First John. I'm jumping around, I know. Um, but John says, And you have no need that anyone should teach you. He is talking about the matters in context, including the things recently in consideration, the ability to discern between the false and true teaching. These people, again, had been anointed with an ability to discern spirits. If they in general had no need of teaching, though, 
then his writing would not make sense, for John was writing to teach and exhort them. So again, I don't think that every Christian that received this word had this gift of anointing, the ability to discern true teaching for false teaching, or else why would he have written the letter? But we know that some people were there, and if anointed here refers to just the general measure of Holy Spirit that Christians receive, then it would imply that we all have all knowledge and we don't need to be taught, which again, it just doesn't make sense in the context. So the guidance that the Spirit gave these early Christians was no lie, but it was truth that guided them correctly that they could abide in Christ. And then finally, the last two verses of the morning, as we're running out of time rapidly, um, verses 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. So again, John gives us another exhortation to abide in Christ, to take up residence in Christ, to live in Christ. He addresses the readers again as children, referring to the general congregation of the saints to whom he is writing. And again, I see this as a term of endearment. John loves Christians. John wants Christians to succeed. God sees, or John sees them as he would see his own children, his own grandchildren. And he is giving them hope. He is exhorting them. He is encouraging them. In this last section, verse 28 through 29, he is summing up a lot of what he has said throughout chapter 2. That when he appears indicates that Christ will return again. But John is not sure when that will be. But he describes this time as being in the last hour. He desires that when Christ does return, that the disciples will have boldness and not be ashamed before the Lord. Our shame before the Lord will come from our unrighteousness. When the trumpet sound and Christ descends on earth again, if we hide in shame, it's only because we know we have not abided in Christ. It is our actions, it is our hearts, it is our love for one another, it is our lives, it is our willingness to follow and be obedient to God's word that will keep us from shame. And, and John says that's why he's writing this. He says, I'm writing this so that we, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. He's saying abide in Christ because then you are guaranteed eternity. When Christ comes, you'll rejoice because you know the final hour has ended and your home awaits you in heaven. Um, he desires that when Christ returns that we have boldness before Him, confidence before Him, that we're not ashamed. And the way to make sure that we can boldly await that day without shame is by abiding in Him, by residing in His Word, by having Christ abide in our hearts. And the verse indicates that those who do not abide in Him will be ashamed and unconfident before Him at the return. We have all been caught by a parent, a friend, a sibling, a loved one, a co-worker, at some point in our lives, doing something we shouldn't have done. If you haven't, 
you're a lot better person than I am. But at some point, we've all been where we have that horrible feeling in the pit of our stomach where we know I'm busted. I've been caught in a lie. I've been caught doing something wrong. And we know how horrible that feels. And that's when our physical brothers and sisters and parents and siblings and spouses have caught us in that situation. How much worse will our shame be when Christ returns and He catches us? And John is writing this to these people. He's writing this to us saying, Abide in Christ. Stand up against these false teachers. Have the heart of Christ. Abide in you so that when Christ returns, you can approach Him confidently with a smile, welcoming Him, saying, Praise the Lord, Christ has returned. My time here on earth is done. Instead of hiding like Adam and Eve did in the garden when, when God came strolling through because of their shame and because of their sin. Righteousness is doing right before God and man. It's being morally pure and obedient to the commands of God. This is the righteousness that we should demonstrate because we are a child of God. And it is a daunting task. It is a task that we fail at every day. Praise the Lord that Christ did come the first time and that He took on that punishment. He took our shame. He bared our burdens. He bore our guilt. He died for our sins so that all we do is just continue to abide in Him asking for forgiveness, confessing our sins, and being found righteous before God. So that's how John encourages the early Christians, and he encourages us. He ends this chapter that he talks about antichrist and anointing and deception and deceit and lies by telling us, abide in Christ, which means you abide in the Father, which means you can be confident before God, come the second coming of Christ, which brings forth judgment. And that's a confidence, that's an encouragement he gives to all of us. So next week we'll jump into chapter 3, and we'll begin talking quite a bit about the love that is required of us in the next few chapters. And that's going to step on our toes as well. But that's all I've got this morning. Thank you.